Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, we are in session 26 of our look through the book of Revelation, one of the strangest sessions given its context. A harvest from the earth. Uh, but before we get into it, as always, let's open up with a season of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time that we can come together. And Lord, at this point in our history, uh, we thank you for giving us the, the privilege of being a people that can come to worship you and to study you in peace. Lord, we realize that uh, we are in the midst of a world that is in suffering and is in intolerance. And we ask that you would give our people a heart for compassion and for reconciliation, for teaching. Lord, we ask for the strength to challenge this world, but also the love necessary, Lord, to show you before others, before it is everlastingly too late. We ask a special prayer request, Lord, on those of our congregation, uh, Lord, who are in the... Uh, the scares of illness, who need a special touch from you, and for those of our congregation that have lost loved ones, Lord, we ask that your mercy and your tenderness would be upon them and their household this, this evening. But Lord, in all things, help us to unite under your banner as one body under Christ. Now open our hearts and our minds to your word, and bless us that we may in turn bless others. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, I will continue with putting this disclaimer to you that in this particular passage, Luke is telling you not to trust anything that I say, but to do your own homework so that as we get into this study, you can come to your own conclusions, but don't be lazy in the study of God's Word. Don't take anything that any single person, no matter how many credentials that they have behind their name, um, don't take what they say for granted, but question everything. And come to your own conclusions and get curious. And know that if there's anything in God's Word that challenges you, do your homework in it, and I promise you that there will be a blessing afterwards. But again, Acts 17.11, please keep that always in the forefront of your mind when you come to my or any study. Now again, we've been looking at the hepatic, heptatic structure, not hepatic, it's not a liver, the heptatic structure of the book of Revelation with all the sevens. In fact, the number of sevens is exhaustible. We're about to encounter a, a small chorus of angels in this particular passageway. Guess how many there are? Seven. In fact, if you're ever on a quiz show and somebody mentions something in the book of Revelation and asks you how many of somethings that there are, seven's a good guess. <clears throat> but there were seven seals, seven trumpets from the seven seals. We heard about seven thunders that John was told not to say anything about. Uh, there was, we're getting ready to learn about the seven bowls of wrath, the wrath that is being pressed out in this passage. And... Uh, we have bypassed the parenthetical statement left over from the sixth trumpet, and we're now hearing uh, the effects of trumpet number seven that will lead us to the bowls or vials of wrath. So anyway, just as a quick review from the previous sessions, uh, we're going to encounter this strange group of people, the 144,000 who were of Jewish descent, they are from the people of Israel, gathered together based on their tribal designation. They were preserved through the period of the tribulation, and they are being found innocent of idolatry and claiming salvation through Christ. And again, there are members from each and every one of the tribes, save only one. We, we mentioned in that last study that Dan was not represented in this number, in that the name Ephraim had actually been blotted out of the record in, fav in favor of his father, Joseph. 
This is a distinct group from the church, from the 24 elders, and from another group of tribulation saints that came in on their heels. Concerning the 144,000, they were designated from Israel. Uh, the 24 elders, they were each given crowns of gold. They had no crowns. The elders were given harps. The 144,000 instead had a very Jewish palm branch in their hand. This signals the welcoming of the Messiah. We saw the same thing as kind of an echo, a heavenly echo of Palm Sunday. The 24 elders had been exempted from the tribulation. These guys got through it. They were saved out of it. Uh, the 24 elders sit upon thrones of their own, but the 144,000 stand before the throne. Uh, the 24 elders were called kings and priests by John. As he's scribing this down, he recognized them. But of the 144,000, he had to ask somebody else. They were not recognized by him as he's pinning the stuff down. Now, there are all kinds of conjectures about this chapter as a whole before we get into it, and I'd like to address those here. Again, a lot of these I'll leave up to you for your own interpretation. But there's this question where it falls in the book, are we talking about something literal or are we talking about a continual sign or heavenly wonder? If it's a sign... It's a parable that will be detailed out later on. If it is a, still a personal experience, this is Christ and 144,000 coming in basically to retake Mount Zion and thereby Jerusalem. Mount Zion being often told an idiom for the city of Jerusalem itself, the capital from which the Christ shall reign. Others see it as a point, and I tend to favor this interpretation. Others see this as a point of transition between the tool, that it is kind of a, a um, it still uses parabolic language, but it's more grounded than the previous visions, meaning that instead of seeing everything in symbols, we're starting to see more of what's tangible here, including Jesus himself and those members of the, the remnant that came out of the tribulation. So anyway, with that being said, we're into chapter 14, not 13, pardon me, the harvest of wrath, beginning with Beginning with verse one. Thank you for the thank you for the correction. <laughs> Always good to have a second hand at the wheel just in case. Then I looked and there was a lamb standing there was the lamb, capital L, standing on Mount Zion. And with him were one hundred and forty four thousand who had the name of his father, or who had his name and his father's name written upon their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder. Ever notice that when John hears something here, it's never a calm whisper or a still voice. It's always the sound of roaring thunders or the sound of many waters or like thousands of harps. It's, it's never anything small. This is always attention-getting. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. But no one, remember this is a distinct group, but no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. We'll touch more on that in just a second. These are the ones, mark this down to help you understand their place and position. These are the ones who had not defiled themselves with women since they, were, since they remained virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Now that's, that's a significant departure from what we think of when we think of pastoral imagery. In the agricultural terms, people don't follow lambs. Lambs follow people. That's the role of a shepherd. But here the sheep... The lamb is the shepherd of the people. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They were blameless. 
So Christ appears with this group that we've encountered before, and we can tell through many things. First, they were found blameless. Second, they were sealed with the name of God. Third, that exact number indicates for you, and the location of the reappearing here. They're coming back to their homeland. They had been identified as being part of the 12 tribes of Israel. So they're coming to basically put an end to the tribulation period. This is the, the, the conclusion or the concluding paragraphs of that three and a half year period. So Christ appears with them on Mount Zion. We'll talk more about the significance of that particular area of, of that geography in just a second. All were marked with God's seal, standing in contrast to the beast worshipers that were marked with the mark of the, the beast. They were found to be completely innocent of spiritual idolatry. And we're going to come back to Babylon as an indicator of spiritual inchastity in just a moment. They were also found perfectly righteous before God. That's a near impossibility. Save only one thing, and we'll talk about that more in just a second. Zion is an interesting piece of real estate. It's located just outside. It's a peak in a ridge system. Like many important capitals of the ancient world, Jerusalem is actually built on a multitude of different peaks and points, hillsides, Zion being a predominant one of them because it also happens to house what is known as the City of David. Now this is the place that David conquered from the Jebusites uh, back during the, the books of Samuel, the Samuels. It, um, the Pool of Sidon is there. This is a very important area of real estate. It is located just southwest of Temple Mount. This is Jerusalem as it was seen back in Jesus' day. At this point in time, it's going to be part of the lower city, the, the, um, what would be in the bottom, the south right part of your screen, still next to that pool, um, overlooking again just southwest of the temple. Now, this is the way that it has been bisected in modern times. So it is going to be part of the Jewish, potentially part of the Armenian quarter, Actually, pardon that, given a look at where the pool is located, the Gihon Spring, it's going to be just outside of those gates. So anyway, this is the area of real estate that we're talking about here. It's overlooking what is currently the city of Jerusalem, dead eye shot to the temple. This is a picture of what it looks like right now uh, with the Abbey of the Dormition, I believe it's pronounced, staring at us from the valley below. So anyway, the site of David's rule over Israel, the site of the United Kingdom. It was also the capital of Melchizedek when it was at that time in Genesis known as Salem. Jerusalem roughly translates as New Salem, Zion, Roughly translates, we actually don't know what the original word meant because it's been lost to time. The idea is that it may uh, mean fortress or castle. But anyway, again, David captured it from the Jebusites. It became known as the city of David, just outside of the, the borders of the old city, southwest of Mount Moriah. There are an awful lot of prophetic imagery mentioned in the Psalms. Psalm 20 says that upon Zion there will be deliverance in the day of trouble. Psalm 48, that the nations will gather around her and tremble. Psalm 74, that the purchased congregation will sing and rejoice from Zion. 76, that God will judge the earth from Mount Zion. 102nd Psalm, that people will gather and will praise the Lord, a future people yet unborn. Psalm 110, and if you haven't read that particular psalm, I have an asterisk by it, please study it before our next gathering because it talks about a priest in the order of Melchizedek who will be ruling from its peak. Psalm 132, God's choice, David will rule and David's line will rule from Mount Zion. 
Psalm 133, from Mount Hermon in the far north to Mount Zion, the capital in the south, the kingdom will be united. Psalm 137, Babylon will be judged from Mount Zion. 146, trust the God of Zion, not a mere mortal man. Trust in the eternal one, not the one who comes in his own name. Psalm 149, vengeance upon the nations will happen at Zion. And they sing a new song, which means that they are singing a psalm of testimony of their own story, a story that is unique to them among the kingdom of God that cannot be learned or repeated from anybody else. This doesn't mean that they just happen to write down something new so that Caleb will be playing it on the radio this afternoon. This is a story that tells us, this is a song that tells the story, their story of redemption. And it is singular among all the people of the kingdom. Uh, there is some conjecture about identifying them as virgins, whether it be literal or metaphorical. I tend to side with metaphorical, and I'll tell you why in just a second. All throughout Scripture, that uh, being chased. God uses marriage as a prophetic image of those who are devout to Him. Those who are chaste, who present themselves as a virgin bride before God, are those who have never given in to the temptation of idolatry or the worship of false gods. Now that's all throughout Scripture, including the example of the church, who is to be the virgin, the chaste bride of Christ. Now, there are a couple of passages in Scripture that, that kind of tease at this being a literal interpretation. Jeremiah 16, for instance, where the prophet is commanded not to take a bride in Matthew 24, where Jesus is basically saying, blessed are those who, who have never had children. Or um, He goes into more explicit language than I'm willing to hear. But for the sake of argument, what he's saying is don't be, when these times approach, don't be encumbered. When you see this happening, head for the hills, head for the mountains. That's what Matthew 24 basically says. When you see the abomination of desolation come up, don't take time for anything but run. And that was part of the language that he was using in that, that chapter. Don't encumber yourself with anything that you can't drop for those that are living there in those days. Now, does, is, is he ordering the people who live in that time and who are faithful uh, to not get married? I don't think that that's necessarily what he's directly referencing there. Uh, because if that were the case, then all the redeemed, because it says these are people that have never known women, all the redeemed out of Israel would have to be, well, they'd have to be men, Right? So the remnant out of Israel, I doubt, is singularly to, a, to one sole gender. Um, I, I think that we're talking more metaphorical language here. Uh, those who were not given to false worship of an idol. And the particular reason that I, I find that is but that I think that is in the texts, there's a very close proximity here in this chapter to these guys and the temptations of Babylon, who is known as the harlot in later chapters. It also says that they follow the Lamb wherever, they, wherever He goes, meaning that they're solely devoted to Him, that they are in effect His bride, that they're following after Him, that, he's, that they're part in that. But anyway, that's again conjecture, we'll move on. But at any rate, they are not partakers of the lie that Paul himself references in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And here he gives, Paul actually gives a commentary on Revelation. Where in chapter 2, in the, highlight this for you, pay, uh, chap, excuse me, verses 9 through 12, the coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's workings with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders. We've just talked about that in the previous couple of sessions. And with every kind of wicked deception among those who are perishing, meaning eternal condemnation, they perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. By the time that we get to this, the lines are closing. 
Verse 11, for this reason God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie. The hard-hearted will get even harder so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness. And we're going to actually see that play out in the next chapter as we see that God is sending all of these these idioms of wrath upon the earth and the people, just like Pharaoh of Egypt, instead of heeding the warning, he gets harder-hearted and stiff-necked and refuses to believe the thing that will bring him mercy. Anyway, let's continue. We identify these, or at least John identifies these, as also the first fruits in the kingdom. Now, in Torah, to bring a first fruit before God means that you bring sheaves of the first thing to, ripe, to ripen. Excuse me, You set them aside as God's possession. And this is regarded as an act of faith because you are willingly sacrificing part of what is intended to be your provision later on. If there is a drought, if there is a crop failure, if there is a bug infestation, uh, if there is a blight of some kind, you are basically handing over the best that you can pull to God to be consumed in fire. So the act of producing something for first fruits is an act of faith. But there's also this literal connotation that uh, those taken first during a harvest time means that there will be a future harvest later on because they are literally and figuratively the first fruits. Just as Jesus Christ and his resurrection is regarded by Paul as the first fruits of the grave. Let's go on. Verse 6. I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, the earth dwellers, the citizens of earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice. Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So this is a final proclamation. The gospel is listed as being eternal. Now, we're probably not used to thinking like that. We're used to thinking of the gospel in kind of a dispensation uh, type of idea that it just came about with the resurrection of Christ. But what we can gather from this is that the gospel was not a knee-jerk reaction to Jesus' crucifixion, nor was it a knee-jerk reaction to the sin of Adam. Rather, it was something that was planned out, mapped out, and ready to go from eternity past that still holds significance all the way beyond the future. It's being presented right now to all the inhabitants of the world or all the citizens of earth, and it's commanding them to fear and glorify God because judgment is right now. Worship Him. Render homage to Him. Accept Him, render unto Him the worth that He is due, meaning that you are lesser. We have a really bad habit of worshiping ourselves, and the book of Revelation mentions that that's very much going to be the problem to the case of the world at this time. So what the angel is basically telling them to do is recognize the fact that God is God. Acknowledge Him as your judge and as your creator. And that's very significant because right now, the ultimate way in which God is being attacked in our culture to this day right now is by Him being stripped of His creatorship. If He's not our creator, what right does He have to condemn us? If He's not our creator, what authority does He have? If He's not our creator, then He cannot be God. Romans chapter 1, among all the other passages in the Bible, I put three down there for you to, to, to look at if you want to. But Romans chapter 1, in Paul's definitive statement on Christian doctrine, which is the book of Romans, he begins by stating that any people who disregard the creatorship of God, 
become surrendered to a reprobate mind. And all through Romans 1, Paul gives an account of what that reprobate mind causes them to commit. Acts that are considered even cruel and unusual in human terms. It it never ceases to amaze me how the one thing that Rome could not tolerate as a culture among all the lands that it possessed and all the peoples that it dispossessed, the one thing religious-wise that Rome could not tolerate is human sacrifice. That's the reason behind the destruction of the Celts. The destru- excuse me, of the Druids. That's also the reason, or at least one of the justified reasons, justified, behind the death of, of, of uh, so many in Carthage. The salting of the earth. Because they were Baal worshippers. And part of Baal worship involved child sacrifice. So anyway, and Paul uses all these other things, including homosexuality, including, including the losing of natural affections of the human heart and unnatural longings. He links all of this to a depraved mind born out of a lack of foundation that is a fear of God, an identification of God as the creator. Anyway, I'll leave that for you to do your own homework on. Failure to acknowledge God results in God's judgment, which is again a product of willful disbelief. Not doubt, not the knee-jerk reaction that is doubt, but digging your heels in and basically declaring in your own mind and heart that no matter what evidence comes your way, you will not believe in God. So the gospel throughout time. In the Old Testament... The love of God was established, or the gospel rather, the, the staying off of sin, if you want to put it that way, was linked to works. Loving God through covenantal worship, basically acknowledging that you are um, in need of a Savior, but providing the blood, the innocent blood required through means of the death of livestock. Now in the New Testament, a perpetual sacrifice was offered through Christ. And we identify the gospel, at least as defined by Paul, as the death, burial, and resurrection. In Revelation here, we're we're seeing that it comes down to this. The Lamb is standing right in front of you. Fear Him and worship Him as your Creator and Judge, for His judgment is right now. Verse 8, another, a second angel followed, saying, It is fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations, underline this with regards to Babylon, the 144,000. She has made the nations drink of the wine of her sexual immorality, of her adultery, which brings wrath. This is another reason directly why I don't think that they're talking about a literal virginity, but rather of the spirit of the soul. This is the first mention of in the book of Revelation of Babylon, which is the second rise, if you will, of the first city, which was Babel. This was the capital of the first united world government under the emperor Nimrod, referenced in Genesis chapter 10, when they tried to build a tower to take over heaven, if you'll remember. And so what did God do? He confused their language and he scattered them out. So this is the point of separation where world cultures and and religions diverge. Now, as I pointed out during our Genesis study, there is a shadow of the Abrahamic religion, the religion that we're a part of to this day, in every other world religion, but it diminishes the farther away that you get from Babylon. For instance, even in in Greek, in the Greek pantheon of gods, human beings, our Genesis story came about when two titans crafted human beings out of the dust of the earth. So throughout all other religions, there is a peppering, a sprinkling of the truth. But as I pointed out earlier in, in several of my sermons, 
The best lies always have a tad bit of the truth in them. So anyway, Babylon is where idolatry and pagan worship have its center. This is where God, because of his intervention, was disregarded by all but one family. A remnant was pulled out of there that became the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in our case. Historically, and this is something else you also need to know while we're going into the rest of the book of Revelation. Historically, Babylon had been conquered numerous times and it was abandoned eventually, but it has never been destroyed. Jerusalem, the city of God, on the other hand, you could definitively say at least twice in its history, has been obliterated. Babylon never has. It was abandoned, the desert consumed it, but as a rule, as by the bare definition, it was never really destroyed, which means it will one day be rebuilt so that it can utterly be destroyed. In some of your translations, it's actually rendered, this passage of Scripture is actually rendered, uh, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, twice together. The reason being that Greek word pipto uh, has dual meanings. The literal meaning is that it has fallen, as in taken from a high place and thrown down low, but it also has a metaphorical meaning, which means to fall under condemnation or to fall under someone's judgment. So um, taking that into account, one of the ways that you can kind of look at that sentence is that Babylon was judged and has been condemned. In other words, study really quickly. Uh, when we're talking about uh, the adultery or the sexual immorality, the word used in Greek is pornea, which literally means illicit sexual intercourse or an, un, an illegal relationship. An illegal relationship. Metaphorically, all throughout Scripture, it has been used as a way to identify that someone has defiled themselves or rendered themselves ceremonially unclean through acts of idolatry or idol worship. And through this, you can, you can see that there's already a link that the city of Babylon, present or coming, is linked directly with the rise and the work of the Antichrist. Now, there is a bone of contention that I want to address really quickly so that I don't have to do it later on. There are a lot of good commentators out there who still to this day believe that Babylon is a code word meaning Rome. And there are multiple sides why this is the case. In the first place, the amillennialists believe that Babylon is a code word for Rome because they believe that the things of Revelation have already passed. That we're talking about a great span of time here that you can't really measure. Uh, the premillennial is kind of the same way. The reason being uh, is kind of a, a catch-22 in, in Roman Catholicism. Basically that earlier in the, uh, the writings of Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5, verse 13, for instance, the future declared bishop of Rome tells his readers that he is actually penning this letter to them from Babylon. So this would act, timeline-wise, this would actually mean that of the apostles, Paul would have beat Peter to Rome. So Peter can't be the first bishop of Rome if Paul's there before him. So this conjures up all kinds of weirdness. Um, there's also the fact that in, in case, in um, about the time of Justinian, when Rome was made, when Christianity was made the official religion of the Roman Empire, there were a bunch of pagan religious leaders that suddenly had to convert to Christianity, not necessarily because of a conviction of the soul, but because this was their, their livelihood. This was their profession, if you will. So they came over with the intention of having been clergy to, to remain clergy, and they drug a lot of this stuff with them. 
So the, a future Rome had to mean... So if Peter was the bishop of Rome, and if in previous iterations... Babylon meant Rome, then all they could, then all you could do basically to save yourself is to say this had to be Rome of the past. This had to be the Rome that was persecuting Christians. That's all done and over with now. Let the book of Revelation go. So if we're talking about a code word here, it raises all kinds of theological problems. First of all, Peter could not be necessarily regarded as the first bishop of Rome because of the timeline. Secondly, does that mean that if, if Peter is using a code word, does that mean that he doesn't believe in divine providence? Does that mean that he has to tell a lie in order to protect himself? Does that mean as it became canon scripture that the Holy Spirit would allow a lie, a mistruth, to enter into the canon? Did the people of Mesopotamia, Babylon still at this point in time, in, in, in 66 AD and beyond, had a significant Jewish population out there that needed ministering to? Did those people not need the gospel? And for those of us on this side of Protestantism, those who, who seize on this code word that can't let it go and still think that they're talking, talking about Rome itself as a way to say that Roman Catholicism needs to crumble. Roman Catholicism, in other words, the, the, the Pope has to fall. That's the way that some in Protestant circles interpret this chapter. My question for them would be, is the truth of basic theology not enough? Do you have to slander somebody in order to get your point across? Straw man arguments, arguments that reduce another denomination's point of view or another church's point of view to, to a baseline shadow of their actual perceived truth. Those are weak arguments. Um, the study of defending somebody's faith is called apologetics. A lot of times, if you get into that kind of literature, you'll see a very reductionistic argument from one denomination against another. If you teach that reduced argument, say... Um, someone from an Armenian camp looks at someone from the Calvinist camp and says, those people believe that we're all a bunch of robots and that God made people to go to hell. Someone from the Calvinistic camp looks at the Armenian camp and says, you all believe that you can lose your salvation at a drop of a hat and you have no assurance. That's painting with an incredibly wide brush on both ends. Really and truthfully, the only way that you can get to know what someone else thinks to make your mind up for yourself is to have a conversation with them. Why do you believe what you believe? And there are a lot of people that try to bypass that, uh, that style of teaching because the straw man argument is simpler, it's easier, it doesn't take nearly as much time. But if someone from one camp actually has a conversation with something, somebody from the other camp, and they've been fed that straw man argument, and they think they have this one Bible verse or this one passage of Scripture or this one thought that will snap that person to their way of thinking, and the other person says, wait, that's not necessarily the whole story. Here's what we're talking about. This is why we believe it. Then the testimony of the person raising the argument suddenly falls. Are you with me? Your theology should stand on its own without making arguments that are either slanderous or an outright lie or a severe reduction on the truth. In this case, I don't believe that Babylon equals Rome because I don't believe that Peter 
had a, such a significant lapse of faith in the providence of God that he felt they had to lie in Scripture and the Holy Spirit permit a lie to enter into Scripture. I believe Peter knew the capabilities and the strength of the God that, was, that he was preaching about. And I believe that the Holy Spirit prevented an error of that degree from ever entering the canon of Scripture. That was, that's the argument that I would present. Okay? So anyway, moving on from that. Another, a third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on its forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And I believe it was asked a little bit ago, once someone receives the mark, are they ineligible for salvation? The, uh, the lack of an unless in this passage seems to indicate that. We're going to continue in this discussion. We're going to keep looking, but that's what the black and white of Scripture at this point seems to indicate. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur, brimstone in some of your translations, in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. Again, this, this is kind of unparalleled, receiving the bark of the beast with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. For one, it's such an intimate declaration, the following, that it basically tells God, I'll have nothing to do with you. And in the case of the Holy Spirit, that's, that's it. That's the final straw. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. Verse 12, this calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. This is John's warning. Don't give up. Endure to the end. Don't heed the temptation even if it's pressure for you to not be able to feed yourself or your children, even if it means that they're going to put you in concentration camps, even if it means that you will be tortured to death, do not take the mark. Do not leave the side of God in this way. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write. We can interpret this as God commanding the apostle. Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. So this is God picking up on John's thought chain. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they will rest from their labors since their works followed them. Don't be afraid of death. Even in the sight of all this, don't be afraid of death. Worshiping the, uh, the beast and, receive, and, and its image that is raised up in the Holy of Holies. Or receiving the mark results in condemnation. In this passage, there was no offer of repentance, no unless spoken. There is instruction to endure in faithfulness despite everything that would come, including death. And there is a literal eternal judgment referenced here. Um, there was some speculation. Are we talking about a symbolic fire or a real fire? If you look up what Jesus himself says about hell in Matthew 13, you can tell that he was convinced it wasn't symbolic. He is very much convinced in a literal place of eternal torment, a literal place of fire. Again, we, we suffer really badly um, from Looney Tunes theology, where we see the devil as a red horned figure with a pitchfork who rules, quote-unquote, 
in this thing that looks like a cave with tongues of flame shooting out hither and thither as people are getting tortured. The Bible tells us that hell is a place of judgment set aside for the devil and his demons. He will not rule there, he will be tormented there. He will not be in power there, he will be persecuted there, as will everybody that follows after him, as will all the souls who disregarded or denied Christ. And again, it is evident through the testimony of Scripture that Jesus himself very much believed in a literal hell. Moving on. The faithful dead in the final stages of tribulation, on the other hand, there are still faithful in place. They are passing away. The forces of the enemy, even at this point in Scripture, are still at work. But here the Spirit is sending reassurance of their salvation. And this is a post-rapture that you can think about in reference to 1 Thessalonians and Philippians, where where Paul is basically telling them, yes, people have died under Roman persecution, but don't think that they've missed out. They haven't missed out on the rapture. The rapture is still coming. But um, for these guys, for the post-rapture saints, in other words, the Spirit is basically telling them, even though the church is gone, hold on to your faith. It's an echo of times past, is what I'm trying to say. Anyway, verse 14, Then I looked, and there was a white cloud, and one like the Son of Man seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now this is new imagery. Another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the time has come since the harvest on the earth is ripe. I want you to notice that word ripe. We'll come back to it in just a second. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth. The earth was harvested. Here we see a few things. First of all, Christ is surrounded by the Shekinah glory of God, which we've seen in other places take on itself the image of a cloud. He is crowned not with a diadem, not with a ruling crown, but with a Stephanos, who is the overcomer's crown, the victor's crown, the crown of someone who endured to the end. The word that I want you to pay attention to that is translated here as ripe, zeraeno, literally means to ripe, to dry up, to get old, to wither away. The, the connotation is to over-ripen. It's like going out to a banana tree and seeing a banana that's not only yellowed but spotted, or a tomato that is so ripe it's actually split down the side and is starting to leak juice if you've ever seen one of those. It, it's past time to harvest. It's been on the vine so long that it's rotten or it's corrupted now. Another angel who also had a sharp sickle came out of the temple of heaven. Yet another angel who had a... Did I just pass up a verse? Okay. Yet another angel who had authority over fire came from the altar and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the earth because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes. Notice the difference here from this kind of harvest and the harvest that we have seen in the past. When we've talked about the Passover harvest, excuse me, when we've talked about um, the harvest that takes place at Pentecost or the harvest that happens at First Fruits, we're talking about harvests of grain. We're talking about the wheat harvest and the barley barley harvest. Here we're talking about Grapes, he hath trampled forth the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. This is where that comes from. We're talking about juicing here, in other words. So the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth, and he threw them into a great rind press of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled. Outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press up to the horses' bridles, 
for about 180 miles. Symbolically, we're talking about uh, just in, in, in one chapter, we're going to move from the trumpets to the vials, or in some of your translations, the golden bowls of wrath. This is the wrath that we're talking about here. Sin generates the wrath of God. Sin generates the wrath of God. Every time that a sin is committed, it angers the God who it's a rebellion against. And if you were to quantify that anger, I want you to think about the words of Christ from Matthew 26, where he prays as drops of blood are being swept from his brow, let this cup pass by me. The cup of what? This is an idiom in very Jewish terms, basically, that, that says, let this go away, let something else come instead but don't let me drink of this cup. What is he drinking here upon himself? He's drinking, he's taking upon himself the wrath of God for you, for me. All the sins that we have ever committed, all the rebellion that we have ever taken within our hearts to perform against God has a result, it has an impact, it has a cost, a cost that has to be paid. The word propitiation means to be satisfied utterly. What has to be propitiated in terms of God's relationship with us? Simply put, his wrath. When Jesus says, let this cup pass by me, he's asking that in the way of Calvary, let there be another way. But the cup that he drank on that mountain was the cup of wrath of God was as though he drank everything that was reserved for you and for me on himself. That's the imagery prophetically that's being set up in Matthew 26. The gathering of the unrepentant is also found several places in Scripture, in the book of Isaiah, Joel, and Zechariah. Um, but what we can glean from this passage, again, God's judgment on sin is without mercy. For the wages of sin is death. There is no other penalty. Think about treason for a second, because that's effectively what it is. You are rebelling against your king. You are rebelling against God. You are rebelling against your creator with sin. There can only be one punishment to answer for that, and that is death. The wages of sin is death. The only remedy for that is to be found without sin. Are we capable of doing that on our own? No. The only way that we can be found without sin before a holy God, who is both just and gracious, who is loving yet glorious, he cannot separate himself from who he is. The only thing that God cannot do is betray his own nature. So the only way that God's wrath can be satisfied is for a substitute to be made. For somebody who is righteous to take upon himself our unrighteousness and for us therefore to be clothed in that substitute's righteousness. I have a sin I cannot pay. He took my sin. I am not capable of righteousness on my own. His righteousness was credited to my account. That's the only way that I have any hope of standing before God and not receiving the death penalty for my life. And that's the way it is with all of us. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He who, was, who knew no sin became Sin for us was reckoned as sin for our sake so that we might be reckoned as the righteousness of God. That's what that means, the substitutionary atonement. Here's one last thing that I want to leave you with before we conclude this evening. From the original Greek, the uh, length of measure 
as the grapes of wrath are being pressed, as the sinful of the earth are being judged. The attack produces a flow of blood that drenches 1,600 stadia of land up to a horse's bridle. Now, a horse... A horse's bridle, if you want to lead it, is give or take about four and a half feet. For a span of about 180 miles, that's not an insignificant number for many reasons. First of all, it's, insignific it's not insignificant because it's a huge span of land. Secondly, it just so happens to be the exact distance from the valley of Megiddo, just south of Mount Carmel in the north of Israel, to Petra in the south. Petra is the ancestral border in the south between um, the kingdom of Judah and Moab. So that number doesn't just have shock value. It has a significance. Basically, it's saying that the whole area of Israel, from Megiddo in the north to Petra in the south, will experience God's judgment and will be awash with it. Our next session, for our next session rather, I'd like for you to take a look at chapters 15 and 16. I want you to, to focus on parallels that you see between the books, between this book and the book of Exodus, as the vials of wrath are being poured out, or bowls of wrath, depending upon your translation both in terms of two things. Number one, the plagues themselves. The plagues that God chooses to pour out upon the citizens of the world for denying the lordship of, of God. Secondly, I want you to take a look at the degree of their hard-heartedness. The judgment that they are hoisting for themselves. As always, please journal your thoughts. Share them with your groups. This is the part of the book of Revelation that we don't like to get into. Because as New Testament Christians, this sounds an awful lot like the Old Testament. This is a God who is not slow to anger anymore. Rather, he has been slow to anger, and now his anger is at its height. He has been patient with humanity for several thousands of years. And now the time that has been the most chronicled about time in all of Scripture has come to pass. The day of vengeance of our God is here. We don't like to talk about it. But as Christians, again, one of the things that we need to take from this is that when this terrible harvest comes to pass, I don't want to see my daughters or my son in it. I don't want to see my neighbors in it. I don't want to see any of my church members in it. So what I need to take out of it is the promise that the church will not see wrath. The promise of God that says that the church will not receive wrath, but will prevail unto the end. I want my kids to be part of the Capital C Church. I want everybody here to be on the other side of this when it happens. I want to see all of my family. I want to see all my neighbors. I want to see as many people as I can witness to there. Not in this. God's judgment is without mercy. But we know the antidote to God's judgment. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth him should not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. Use these passages as inspiration. Not to deny God's judgment as a reality, but to compel us to help rescue others from it. And all God's people said. So Heavenly Father, as we conclude this study, Lord, give us a conviction to see those around us included in the number that is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Make us bold to this effort and continue to teach us that those within the sound of our voice might come to know you before it is everlastingly too late, Lord. To see the time as the conclusion of the offer of the gospel. Help those out there within the sound of our voice and the reach of our instruction whether it be on the street, whether it be in the shop, whether it be in this house, whatever the case may be, help us, embolden us to make sure that the people you put in our path, that those people, that those are faces that we see when all this is said and done. And when your glory and your justice and your judgment come about, help us to be the messengers of the way that you've provided so that they may found innocent before your throne. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.